Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. <laughs> welcome. My name is uh, Dr. Karen Eichler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we direct the Garavana Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university, and we couldn't be happier uh, that you came out. We have, um, for the last several years, uh, we, we have a film series that we call Bringing Hides and Face to Film, and usually the week before Halloween, we like to show a zombie movie, and then I found uh, somebody who is a, like the world's leading authority on zombies and movies and thought that would be super cool. So that's what you're here for tonight. Couple of announcements before I introduce our speaker. If you are a first time visitor um, from the community and you would like to know more about the Garabana Center and the events that we sponsor because we sponsor concerts and talks and films and workshops and conversations, we have um, our calendars over there on the table and we have flyers for some of our upcoming events. We also have a sign-up sheet there if you'd like to be part of our electronic mailing list, which keeps you up to date on all the fast-breaking events that are happening at the Garabana Center, as well as um, weekly podcast reflections by Father Gordon on the Sunday reading. So if you want to know more and want to be part of that, uh, sign-ups are over here after the talk. If you are a student, who is here as part of a class or hoping to get something out of it for a class, um, sign-ups or sign-ins for that are going to be on the table outside the door after Dr. Murphy's talk. All right? Is that is that it, Father Gordon? Oh, can you use? If you're a teacher uh, in K-12 schools anywhere, we are pleased to be able to present you with free professional development unit PDUs. Um, also with a sign up over here on the table and my name is you sign up with your email and that letter in the mail to you tomorrow at no cost because we have a special arrangement with our school of education okay um, every now and again I hear somebody say I'm bored and I always wonder how could somebody be bored when there are so many cool things to wonder about in the world just crazy stuff going on in the world how in the world could you be bored? And so it brings me an extra thrill when I read the resume of someone like Dr. Kelly Murphy, who we're going to hear from tonight, because you can tell by looking at her, she does not, not only does she not have an unclaimed moment in her life, she's very busy, but she is interested in so many things. She is a, a professor of religious studies and philosophy at Central Michigan University, and she has published on zombies and films. She has published on biblical prophets. She has uh, published on images of masculinity in scripture and social justice in scripture connected with masculinity, connected with zombies. She's a woman who is able to make amazing connections uh, among topics that would never even occur to me were kissing cousins and Dr. Murphy makes those connections. She arrived at Central Michigan University by way of a doctorate at Emory and also graduate studies um, in Oxford and she was charged with with filling classes at a really large university where nobody was taking classes in biblical studies and um, they said, you've got to fill those classes, what do you got? And she said, well, I'd like to teach a class on zombies and the apocalypse. And they said, well, you can try it, but no one will ever come to something about zombies. And the classes are standing room only. They, they've been written about. Um, the, the Washington Post did a story that got released then all over the country, and that's how she came to our attention. And we knew that we just had to get her to come to speak for the Garaventa Center. So let's get to Bibles and Brains, reading scripture in the zombie apocalypse as we welcome Dr. Kelly Murphy. Bible and zombies and brains. Um, 
The most important thing that I'm going to say tonight is on the screen. There are no zombies in the Bible. So, there are no zombies in the Bible. The reason why this is important is because after I taught my class at Central University, I got a lot of emails from people who wanted to let me know that there are no zombies in the Bible. Um, I, I know that, but they wanted me to know that too, and so I just want to establish that from the very beginning. There are no zombies in the Bible. Sure, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel raises up dry bones, and Jesus revives his friend Lazarus from the dead. And perhaps most interestingly, in the book of Matthew, we have this. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. But none of these things are zombies, because there are zombies in the Bible. Thank you. All right, if you don't get anything else out of tonight, that should be like the thing that you get. So, there are no zombies in the Bible, but I ended up teaching this class at Central Michigan University on zombies and the Bible. It was called From Revelation, from the book of Revelation to the Walking Dead, Apocalypses Then and Now. And we traced the evolution of apocalyptic texts all the way from the book of Revelation and before it to the Walking Dead and beyond. Um, these are my students at Central. They were not, in fact, dressed like zombies. This is... Um, the wonders of uh, computer programming, but they did pose for this picture and they were very proud of it. So when I got to Central, they asked me to think of new classes to teach. And at the time, I was reading a lot of stuff about the end of the world. And I think that the end of the world, stories about the end of the world are especially poignant. They ask really big, important questions. And they made me think of the Bible and the stories in the Bible that are about what might happen at the end and so I thought, what would happen if we put these together and started to think about these together? One of the clips from The Walking Dead that I want to start with is what set me off on this a little bit. And so this is from season two, and it is when Herschel and Rick have managed to escape from Herschel's farm, and they're standing on the highway, and they're waiting for the rest of the people to come and meet them. And if you don't know anything else about the show, they're standing on a highway, which is littered with zombies, and they're waiting for the rest of their friends and family to come and meet them. an instance where Lori doesn't know where Carl is. Now, some of you giggled. 
But it's a serious question. The disconnect between what we might expect and what happens in the world, what we might believe, and the things that happen around us. And so that got me thinking, how can we put ancient texts into conversation with contemporary texts about the end of the world, which very rarely mention God or the divine? The Walking Dead very rarely stops to think about the world of God or the world of divine. So, because I'm at a Catholic university, I feel compelled to start with a confession. I actually do not like zombies. I find them to be creepy and gory and kind of horrible, and the stories are often far too violent for me. About half of the things I am going to talk about tonight, I've only watched about half of, because I spend most zombie films and zombie television shows like this or like this. But I keep watching. Why do I keep watching? Because I think the questions that these stories are asking are incredibly important. Stories about the end of the world ask questions like why, make us ask questions like why have humans always told stories about the end? Humans have always thought about what it might be like at the end of the world. That's interesting. People, these kinds of stories also make us think about what kinds of anxieties and dreads these stories tap into. They make us think about what it means to be human, what it means to be good, and what it means to be evil. They make us ask where we're going, not just today or tomorrow or according to whatever your five-year plan is, but where's history going? What is humanity doing here? And what is our place in that larger narrative arc? And then what if the world as we know it were to fall apart? How would you behave? More importantly, how would I behave? And these are big, important questions. So, I'd like to frame tonight's conversation around one of my favorite quotes about zombies by a guy named James Loder, who wrote Triumph of the Walking Dead. And the quotation is this, all zombie stories are created equal. Oh, sorry, all zombies are created equal. All zombie stories are not. The best ones, like The Walking Dead, get into your head and make you think make you fatten up the gray matter that the living dead lust after so ravenously. So I want to frame our conversation around four gray matter fattening facts when we combine thinking about the end of the world and zombie narratives and ancient apocalyptic texts. The first one is, what's an apocalypse anyways? The second one is, monsters reveal. The third one is, zombies as and prophets, also known as when zombies started to eat brains. And the fourth one is horror, hope, and humanity. All right, so our first one. To begin this, we have to watch a short clip from a movie that I think you all watched last year, Warm Bodies. Um, and it's the beginning of Warm Bodies. And I'll tell you more in a minute. I'm so pale. I should get out. I should eat better. Or say much of anything. 
must have been so much better before, when everyone could express themselves and communicate their feelings and just enjoy each other's company. All right, so you watch this, and probably a couple of different things happen. But one of the things that you might have thought is, this is breaking all the rules about zombies. Zombies don't wander around thinking and wondering about the world in which they live. I want to come back to that in a second. The other thing that I want to point out is that R sort of casually muses that he's had a hard time piecing together this whole apocalypse thing. And we all go, sure, right, apocalypse, end of the world, end of society as we know it, everything is different, it's not the same. Our popular culture loves the apocalypse. It is almost everywhere. Our favorite apocalypse is the zombie apocalypse, and we have certain expectations about the zombie apocalypse. There will be zombies. They will be no longer alive. They're somehow undead, that they can still move around. They eat brains or flesh, maybe. They're contagious, especially through a bite. They have no recollection of their human self. And if you want to kill them, you go for the head. Right? This is, I mean, we all know this. We hear about the apocalypse in a lot of other places, too. If you've ever read Margaret Adams' Mad Adams series, um, if you've watched Interstellar, if you've turned on just about any television show, there are all these references to the end of the world, how things are going to end, everything is going to be different. It's in our politics all the time. As recently as 2015, Representative Michelle Bachman said that the apocalypse was going to happen, the rapture was going to happen. It was because of Obama's thinking about marriage and the Marriage Equality Act, and also because of his policies on Iran. That was going to bring about the end times. It's everywhere we look. Now, that's really interesting, but the most interesting thing, even the Pentagon has an apocalypse, a zombie apocalypse plan. It's tongue-in-cheek. They use it for training, but it's everywhere, right? The zombie apocalypse is everywhere. But what's really interesting is that while we use this term, apocalypse, pretty regularly, in its ancient context, it meant something totally different. So many of you have probably heard of the book of Revelation, yes, or maybe the book of Daniel from the Old Testament. Chapters 7 through 12 in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, are both considered apocalypses in terms of genre. So you read Harry Potter, you're reading fiction. If you pick up a um, history of the United States, you are reading history, right? Different genres. Well, there's a genre of literature called the apocalypse, which was incredibly popular from around the year 250 CE, BCE, until the year 200 CE. We only ended up with the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12 in our Bible, and the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. But there were a ton of apocalypses written during this time period including the Book of Watchers, First Enoch, Apocalypse of Zephaniah, Testament of Abraham, Third Baruch, Four Ezra, Second Baruch, Jubilees, Revelation, some of these you might recognize if you're using a Catholic Bible. Um, and these don't make it into the canonical Bibles that we have today. But early Jews and Christians used and read these books quite frequently. And we get the word apocalypse that we use all the time to talk about the end of the world, the end of society, the zombies who are going to come and munch, like, munch on our brains, right? We use this word all the time, but it actually means something quite different than end of the world. The book of Revelation begins the revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. In other words, the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get our word apocalypse, and we use it as end of the world, comes from a Greek word that means to uncover or to reveal. It has nothing to do necessarily with the end of the world. Some of these books imagine the end of the world, but they don't all imagine the end of the world. And so the way that you can think about this is, um, if you think about a marriage ceremony, and this was true in the Greek world too, a bride walks down the aisle, typically, and she gets to the end of the aisle, and then the groom does what? Lifts off the veil, and it uncovers her or reveals her for the first time to her husband and to whoever else is in the audience. What was hidden is now visible. <coughs> Apocalypses were written by people like John of Patmos to uncover or to reveal something about the world that you couldn't just see unless a prophet of God told you about them. 
and so they were written to uncover or reveal certain secrets, sometimes about the end of the world, sometimes just about how life was, a revelation, an uncovering. So we've got this word that we use in a really different way today than how it was used in the ancient world. And that's our gray matter moment number one. Apocalypse hasn't always meant end of the world. Apocalypse originally meant to uncover or to reveal something hidden, something secret, something that was not clearly visible to everyone. That takes us to gray matter moment number two, which is that monsters reveal. At first glance, you might not think that there's anything particularly revealing about zombies. They're all over the place, they're in our pop culture stories. What could be so special or interesting about these monsters? But our Lat the, the word monster comes from a Latin word, which actually means um, to show or to reveal. And there's a verb, which it's also related to, the Latin monstrum is related to the Latin monere, and that means to warn. So essentially, monsters are revelations or warnings, if we translate it literally. Now, apocalypses reveal and monsters reveal too, if we study them and explore them and think about them. Obviously, the zombie apocalypse is filled with zombies, but there are no zombies in the Bible. Good, all right, you're still with me. Um, but our scriptures brim with monsters too. There are beasts in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 has a beast that comes out of the ocean and it has a horn and the horn is filled with human eyes. It's creepy, yes. There is also Leviathan and Behemoth in the book of Psalms, amongst other places. There's the dragon in the book of Revelation. And so what might zombies and biblical monsters reveal to us if we study them and think about them more closely? Now. Unlike a lot of the monsters that have come into Western imagination, zombies are not from the Western world. Vampires, Western. Werewolves, Western. Zombies come to us from West Africa through Haiti. West African, West Africans were taken out of Haiti, uh, sorry, West Africans were taken out of West Africa and forced into slavery in Haiti by the French, and then later they were also oppressed by U.S. colonial rule in Haiti. And in Haiti, there was this idea that if someone transgressed a norm, an evil sorcerer would come and take that person, and they would make that person into a zombie, without an E, B-O-M-B-I, and they would force that person to do their will or their bidding. And that person would have no self-control, no ability to not do the, the work that the master was trying to make them do. But at no point did these zombies eat brains. They were merely these sort of automatons that were controlled by a master. Sometimes these were living beings, and sometimes these were people that had been brought out of the graves and forced to work in the sugar mills. This is the idea behind the sort of folklore of the Haitian zombie. But no brains. There's no brain eating. Now that's interesting because we have a zombie that does nothing but eat flesh and brains. And so how did we get from the Haitian concept of the zombie to the American concept of the zombie where zombies eat brains? Well, first of all, imagine this. You are in Haiti. You have been forced into slavery. And you essentially have no control over your own life. And so when you start to imagine what might be scary, what might be terrifying, there's nothing more terrifying than being enslaved to the point where not only do you not have any control over your life, but you don't even have any control over your brain. You're no longer you. You've become disembodied in some sense. Your, your soul is not part of your body, and your body just does whatever the master wants it to do. So this fear, according to most zombie scholars, makes a lot of sense because you've got people who are already enslaved who are afraid of being enslaved. And so this monster makes sense if you think about the context in which this is happening. But then we've got the Americans, and the Americans come to Haiti, and they colonize it, and they learn about this mysterious voodoo uh, zombie figure, and they get worried because it's a scary monster that they've never heard of before. 
And so we get our first, one of our first movies about zombies. It's called White Zombie. It is a terrible, terrible movie, and I'm going to show you a clip from it. Um, so this is White Zombie, 1932. So stay with me, right, for a minute. That's the evil sorcerer. <laughs> that's how you know he's evil. And that's the white American lady that he falls in love with. Dun, 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 right? Right? So you weren't scared of zombies eating your brains or zombies coming to get you. What you were scared of was becoming a zombie. I just said that wrong twice, right? They're not afraid of the zombies getting them. The Haitians are afraid of being turned into zombies. But now we get this movie made by American filmmakers in 1932 where the fear is that some person in Haiti is going to make a nice white American lady into a zombie. Yes, exactly, right? And so the zombie starts to change. It's not something that happens to the Haitians. It's something that could possibly happen to Americans, too. And if you read that and think about that in the context in which this movie is made in 1930s America, this is when imperialism is happening, colonialism is happening, when America is starting to lose some of its power abroad. and. Some people, especially white American men, are starting to worry that maybe they are not as strong and powerful as they think they are. They're losing power nationally and abroad. And so you can see the zombie starts to change. Zombies have always been breaking the rules constantly. And it becomes an American monster in some ways. But they still don't eat brains. So this takes us to the book of Revelation, which also has monsters. This is one of the most famous monsters from the book of Revelation, mostly because of the number 666. A giant beast rises out of the earth. It's got two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like a dragon. It deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, 
so that no one can buy or sell who does not have that mark. This is the name of the beast, that is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Now, this is fascinating. Essentially, this is what just happened, if it wasn't totally clear. Revelation is a little bit confusing. There's a beast. He comes out of the ground. Yes? He marks everyone with a number, either on their forehead or on their hand. And then you can only buy things or sell things if you have the mark. Yes, this is from the Brick Testament, which is a lovely resource online. All right. So, 666, the number of the beast. Raise your hand if you've heard of the number of the beast. All right. One of the most famous people who's been identified as the number of the beast or as the beast was Ronald Wilson Reagan, because Ronald Wilson Reagan had three names that each had six letters. He was clearly the beast, yes? Other people include Pope Benedict XI, Saddam Hussein, Barack Obama, and the more recent Pope Benedict. There have been a lot of beasts throughout history if you listen to the people who try to decide who was the beast. Now, others have decided that it's not actually a person, it's a thing, so it's the Social Security Administration, or it's credit card chips, that's the mark of the beast, or one of my personal favorites is the Monster Energy Drink. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it on YouTube. All right. So these have all been identified by people who read the book of Revelation as signs of the end time. Ronald Wilson Reagan has three names, and they each have six letters in it. Oh, my God, the world's about to end. Clearly, right? Only what didn't happen after Ronald Wilson Reagan was the president of the United States. The world did not, in fact, and we know because we're here tonight. Yes, all right. So one of the interesting things about this passage about monsters is that we can read it in the same way that we think about zombies. If zombies reflect their context, warm bodies is about the 2000s when people walk around on their phones and don't notice what they're doing and they don't pay any attention to anyone else and they run into a wall, right? That's one of the concerns of the late 2000s. The book of Revelation is a beautiful, complex, amazing book. It's inspiring in many ways, but it's also been used to try to predict the end of the world. Harold Camping tried to predict the end of the world multiple times. He said it was going to end on May 21st, 2011. The world didn't end, but people had emptied their bank accounts. They had left their families. They had gone around the United States proclaiming that the world was about to end, and then it didn't. And he based his predictions on books from the Bible. So. A couple of Bible nerd facts about the book of Revelation to help us think about reading it in context. It was written sometime around the year 100 BCE, give or take. This is a debatable issue. And it's at the height of Rome's empire in the Asia Minor. And certain groups of early Christians, to whom John and Patmos, the author of the book of Revelation, is writing, are feeling very oppressed by the Romans. They feel like they can't worship God in the way that they are intended to worship God. One of the most famous of the oppressive emperors was a guy named Nero, Nero Caesar. Now, there was a practice in Hebrew and later in Greek to take every letter of the alphabet and assign it a number, numerology. And in this case, if you write Nero Caesar in Hebrew, you get that what's on the board. And if you translate each of those letters into the numbers that correspond with them, you get 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 50 plus 100 plus 60 plus 200, which gives you 666. And in the ancient world, there was this practice of putting a mark on coins, and the mark would be the picture of the emperor. So people have spent lots of pages, lots of ink, trying to identify who the beast is, who 666 is. But the text tells us if we read it in its context. It's a warning about Nero. It's a coded reference to the emperor Nero, who was a horrible, horrible emperor to the early Christians. And it's saying, don't be associated with the Romans 
were using the money and participating in sort of Roman <coughs> economics and doing evil Roman things, like thinking they're emperors or the son of God, when we're Christians who know that the only son of God is Jesus. And so we can read these texts and see how the context can help us interpret the monsters. Monsters reveal to us all kinds of things about the authors who write them, the authors who imagine them, and what they're worried about, what their fears are. So this takes us then to our third gray matter moment, which is this. Zombies begin eating flesh, and they start to judge you and me. Or zombies as prophets and, sorry, as prophets and prophets. The original Greek word for prophet means an interpreter or a foreteller of the divine will. Prophets are, um, in the Hebrew Bible, you should think of the Lorax. Have you ever read the Lorax? And he goes around saying, like, if you don't stop cutting down the trees and making the sneeze, like, bad things are going to happen. And so he's addressing his context. If you don't stop this horrible behavior, bad things are going to happen. The prophets Ezekiel, the prophets Jeremiah, the prophets Isaiah, they're all doing the same thing. Hey, if you don't stop worshiping other gods, God's going to be really mad. You should really stop worshiping other gods. Or, hey, if you don't stop letting your wives make cakes for the Queen of Heaven, bad things are going to happen. Stop doing that. Or if you don't start taking care of the poor, bad things are going to happen. And so, when we look at Revelation 13 again, we see the same thing. Don't participate in these Roman economic practices. Don't be associated with 666. And the book of Revelation, in its larger context, basically says this. Don't do the things the Romans are doing. Be Christians. Be true and faithful to God. So, when we get to zombies again, we get here. At some point, zombies start to bite people. And this is one of my favorite zombie haikus. After I was bit, I knew I was in trouble when I bit me, too. How did we get biting zombies? And the answer to that is this movie, Night of the Living Dead. It is one of the most interesting movies about zombies. I won't show you the whole clip because it's quite long, but a young woman and her brother are in the graveyard visiting one of their parents' graves. And the brother's kind of a jerk. He's not being particularly nice. And then we get our first zombie who eats flesh. So this is a moment in zombie history that's very important. Hey, I mean, pray into the church, huh? I haven't seen you in church lately. I think I will. There's not much sense in my going to church. Do you remember one time when we were small, we were out here? It was from right over there. I jumped out at you from behind the tree, and Grandpa got all excited, and he shook his fist at me, and he said, Boy, you'll be dead to hell. <laughs> remember that? Right over there. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. Well, you're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny! Johnny, just so you know. All right, that is our first flesh-eating zombie. Zombies are always breaking the rules. George Romero takes the Haitian notion of a person who is enslaved and has no mind of its own and combines it with a, a monster called the ghoul. When he does that, we get zombies that eat flesh and then in later movies, brains. Zombies are always breaking the rules. Now, one of the most interesting things about this is that this movie is about the woman that we saw, who runs off after her brother gets attacked, she finds her way to a farmhouse, and in the farmhouse, 
there's a man, and his name is Ben. And Ben is a wonderful, wonderful man. He also happens to be an African-American man in 1968, yes, in a movie, in a house filled with white people. Over the course of the night, every person in the house dies. They all get eaten by the zombies. Ben is the only one who survives. At the end of the movie, this group of men, who are all white, who are all carrying guns, who have dogs, come, and it, Ben is in the window. And it's very unclear. Do they know that it's a man, or do they think that it's a living, dead person? There's, they don't actually use the word zombie in this movie. We don't know. But they shoot Ben before they find out. So the only survivor, who also happens to be an African-American male, is shot at the end of the movie. And then they see, then they take Ben's body, and they put his body on the same pile of bodies that they put all of the other living, dead bodies on. 1968. When Romero made this movie, people said things like what Kim Pass and Rob says here. Romero seems to go out of his way to surround the posse with the imagery that makes it nearly impossible to overlook their similarity to an American lynch mob, a crowd of exclusively white men, only loosely governed by governmental authorities, with guns and barking dogs, killing everything in their path. It is hard to watch Night of the Living Dead without seeing social commentary, without seeing Romero saying, either on purpose or not, hey, American racism is bad, and we need to fix our ways. And if we don't fix our ways now, then something bad is going to happen. Much in the same way as John and Patmos said, if you don't stop participating in the Roman imperial system, bad things are going to happen. We're supposed to be faithful to God. It's this subtle social critique, it's a social critique of what's happening. And so that is our third gray matter moment, which is that reading zombie apocalypses and ancient apocalypses together, we see the way that these stories function to critique society and to say, we need to step it up. We need to do better. We can be better. So that takes us to our very last gray matter moment. This is the back of the cover of the Walking Dead um, comics, and it's probably hard for you to see this, but horror, humanity, and hope. And it says this, in a world ruled by the dead, we are forced to finally start living. But what does that mean? What does it mean to finally start living in a world ruled by the dead? And this is one of the places where I think zombie stories and apocalyptic stories do really interesting things where they make you start to say, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to really live? So, I was going to show this scene, and we'll just watch the beginning of it because I think it'll help. Sean's about to go, to, to go down to the shop, yes?
movie, you know that that man had a dog yesterday, right? He's walking his dog, and so there's no dog. All right. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to really start living? Zombies reflect our worries about what it means to have a body, that bodies decay and die. They seem to reflect our propensity towards violence and what that might mean. The mindless shuffling of the zombie horde can offer a critique of consumerism or of our mindless engagement with technology or just of not paying attention to the world around us. Maybe imagining a monster that looks so much like us but without our goals or our thoughts reflects our inherent awareness of how bad things might really be. Wars, terrorism, fear of others, environmental disaster. Our ancient apocalyptic texts are often filled with violence and despair, so much so that the book of Revelation was a controversial addition to the New Testament. Many people did not want to add the book of Revelation to the New Testament. In popular culture, books like Revelation are often only invoked to predict the end of the world, as though the text is a map for when and how that will happen. Remember Ronald Wilson Reagan. But it's often overlooked that apocalyptic texts like the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are also filled with hope. Daniel includes a promise of salvation. You shall rise for your reward at the end of days, Daniel 12, 13. So too in Revelation, with all of its raging beasts and dragons, says that at the end of the book, residents will live peacefully in the holy city, the new city that God has created, which will have streets of gold and the radiance of rare jewels there will be a new, better world. At the end of the day, no matter how desolate or terrifying the ancient apocalypses might seem at first, they're ultimately meant to be read as helpful and cathartic for their intended audiences. Remember, the audience of the book of Revelation fears being persecuted by the Romans. And John sends this letter out that says, yeah, things are bad, but the beast and the dragon they're going to get it at the hands of God. And you, if you're faithful, are going to have good things happen to you. So, to conclude, zombie stories tell us about hope and horror and humanity, and so do ancient apocalyptic texts. If you go here, we have this. This is one of the famous things from the book of um, Revelation, the four horsemen who come forward and they've got swords and robes dipped in blood, and it's very violent. But again, at the end of the story, there's something new, something beautiful. This is also true in zombie stories. And so you think of The Walking Dead and this conversation that Rick has with one of his friends, Morgan, over a walkie-talkie when he doesn't even know whether Morgan can hear him. And he says, we're facing a long, hard journey. That's what lies ahead, and I'm trying hard not to lose faith. I can't, because if I do the others, my family, my wife, my son, there's just a few of us now, so we've got to stick together. And so at the end of the day, hope keeps people going in the zombie apocalypse, and it's also the thing that causes books like Revelation to be written and given to their communities, hope. And so it might seem like there's not much in common with these ancient texts and these contemporary texts. But we've got, at, at the end of the day, this promise that things will get better and that even then, with all of the bleak despair and all of the examination of human nature and relationships that run like a thread through these stories, There's similarity. There's something that's similar in the way that ancient humans thought about the world and the way that contemporary humans think about the world. There's a similar question that's being asked about all of these things. There's also a significant tension because in books like Daniel and Revelation, this world is repeatedly portrayed as hopeless and awful and bleak and controlled by the powers of evil. After all, they proclaim time and time again you only have to look around to see that that's what's happening. Everything is bleak and terrible. But there's this counterintuitive promise that the texts hold for their audiences. Despite how the world seems, God and not humans, in the ancient texts, are ultimately in control of his, is ultimately in control of history. In things like The Walking Dead, 
or even the bleak outlook of Romero and his films, what we have isn't a hope in the divine, but a hope in humanity, that humanity can rally, that humanity can be better, that humanity can take care of one another. And so, in the end, the stories that we tell about beasts from the land or humans turned zombies are good to think with, and they give us insight on what it might mean to have hope in each other and or in God. biblical thought is perfect and holy and wonderful. And so the number six is essentially anything that's less than that. And so we can sort of think about that um, and the way that they thought about numbers in terms of um, the number six was less than perfect. It was less than good. So it's no accident that 666 ends up being a bad number. That was very good, right? So, good point. <laughs> Any other questions? I know it's late. <laughs> yes? So, do you think there's any way to, like you personally, predict the end of the world? Yeah, absolutely. So, the question was is there any way to predict the end of the world? Um, and my response would be twofold. The short response is no. Yes, no, you can't. Um, and the reason I would say no is that people have been trying for a really long time, and they just keep getting it wrong. In some ways, the book of Revelation is itself a failed prediction of the end of the world, because John of Patmos really thought that there would be divine intervention in his lifetime. Soon, soon, soon. And he probably really meant soon and not like 2,000 years later, right? Um, the other thing that people often point to is uh, the passage where Jesus says that not even the Son of God knows when the end of the world would come. Um, and so, I mean, if we're going to give someone the last word, it seems like Jesus might be the right one. <laughs> other thoughts or questions? Yes, please. So, so what do you think um, you're, you're looking at, the horrible thing that happens that is at the end of the world, but many different faith traditions, Christianity and Judaism, talk a lot or are very interested in what comes after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm interested especially in looking at the horror stories and monstrosities that seem to be so much about chaos and really there is nothing left after everybody's brain gets mm-hmm. So what about that gray stuff after the end? In zombie apocalypses or in sure, the, comparing the two, I'm just interested. Yeah, that's where they go on really different yeah. roads, right? Because um, clearly the book of Revelation and even the book of Daniel, and we could go into Enoch and some other ancient texts, um, have it have a vision of what's going to happen. And that's that God creates a new and beautiful world here to replace the world that we have, which is not so great. Um, and that's really clear at the end of Revelation and at the end of other ancient texts. Um, what we see in contemporary stuff is usually not quite as hopeful as that, and, and I won't spoil anything, but you know that because we're in the seventh season of The Walking Dead, right? <laughs> and they're still sort of miserable, um, and there's not been a new, good, wonderful thing. Um, you do get uh, other zombie narratives, though, where there is a sort of hopeful ending. You think warm bodies, I don't know how many of you have seen it and I don't want to spoil it, but there is a sort of hopeful, yay, ending in more bodies that's more akin, I think, to, to Revelation than perhaps some others. So I think it depends on what contemporary apocalypse you're talking about. So maybe that tells us about the authors, more about the authors than anything else. Honestly, like Omega Man, mm-hmm. the story upon which it was based, which I think the Meta Living Dad drew on that. Right. In the book, the guy is a 
a spoiler, I shouldn't say what happens, but it isn't good. Right. right. Whereas in the movie, maybe the 70s Charles, Charles and Charlton Heston, Sometimes everything's okay to sort of reflect the different look of the culture of what you do. Yeah, and maybe that in the 70s, things were. And Charles and And Charles and it, right? And, and versus the 2000s or the knots or what have you. I don't know. But it's a good question. I think a lot of it has to do with context and what's happening around the creation of these narratives.